Welcome to Trails Worth Hiking. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In this episode, we'll talk about a hike that's almost at the equator in South America. But it's not what you think. Your mind probably goes to images of a steamy Amazon jungle. But this hike starts at over 2,800 meters or over 9,250 feet up in the Andes of Ecuador. And it finishes a lot higher up. It's a challenging and beautiful hike, and it drops into and out of deep river canyons and traverses a rural countryside populated by indigenous people. It's a region rich in Andean culture. The hike goes town to town through small farms along dirt roads and trails with volcanoes on the horizon throughout the hike. The hike ends at a massive caldera lake formed hundreds of years ago by volcanic eruption. In this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Kilatoa Loop in Ecuador. To help me talk with you about Ecuador and the trail, I have a guest who for a long time has been one of my favorite people to go trekking and backpacking with. And that is my son, Justin Pendry. Our family hiked the Kilo Toa trek in June 2019. Justin, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So how was my intro to this episode? Was, it, was I pretty accurate about what this hike is all about? Yeah, I thought you summed it up pretty well. It felt like a trek through farmyards, in a place that I didn't know existed, which was high mountain equatorial Ecuador, I guess. Yeah, it was interesting because you you think of, you know, you're going to the equator, right? And then when you get there, you're you're expecting, like I was saying in the intro, you're expecting something that feels more equatorial, I guess, more hot and steamy. Um, more but- rainforest. More rainforest, right? But it wasn't rainforest. What, what can you describe just generally what the the area looked like? It was high mountain farmland mostly. There were farms that went to the top of the mountain, just straight up cliffs with people walking up and getting their corn and their lupin and what was the other main crops? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think uh, the corn, which was kind of a reddish plant, a reddish looking yeah. corn, was one of the main ones. And then, yeah, there were lupin um, flowers, which we associate here uh, where we live in California with a wildflower. But in Ecuador, they they make they have a they harvest a bean from it. They call chocho, mm-hmm. which we ate a lot of. Yeah, I remember those on like the pack lunches from the hostels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are pretty good. All right, so I'm glad my 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 uh, introduction was close to accurate. So let's let's talk a little bit about Ecuador first, because if someone's going to take this trip, they're going to head to Ecuador and they're going to have to have some familiarity with the country and and overall where they're headed. Um, so, Justin, before we went to Ecuador, what did you know about it? Well, I, I thought Ecuador was Spanish for equator, and it, it may <laughs> be, but that's about as much as I knew. I knew the equator went through it. I knew it was in South America. That's about it. That's where it ends. Okay. And so did you have any conception of what it would be like before you got there, other than the idea of it being maybe hot because it was close to the equator? Not really. I I guess I knew that the Spanish had colonized, and so I, I thought maybe it would be kind of like the European towns I'd seen in the past from Spain and from Sweden and the rest of Europe. 
Um, but I, I didn't have any scope for what the northernmost Andes would look like and what the feel of that country would be. All right. So let me let me give our listeners a little bit of information about the area. Um, so as you met, it's in South America, as we mentioned, um, it's in the northern part of South America. And Ecuador has about 17 million people. And it's just under the size of the American state of Colorado. And obviously, it straddles the equator. The equator runs across the country just north of Quito, the capital, in the northern part of the country. When we were there, we actually went to the equator. What can you tell listeners about that? Well, the big statue that they have is actually, what, like 80 meters off the equator, something like that, where it's not quite in the right spot because they didn't have GPS tracking. And so they were going off of some... A technology that has become obsolete since um, and so they had like two different parks that were technically the equator places and this first one was the big tower I guess with the north south or the yeah the north and the south north part of the equator south part of the equator and then the other one was like the touristy it, that one was weird I don't even know how to describe that one what do you think yeah, so you're right. The first one, it's it's actually not on the equator. So you go to this, there's a big line, and it's the first one is great for photos because it's got this huge tower and lines. But um, you're right, because they did it um, in an age before GPS. It, it's not actually on the equator. The other one, who knows if it is, but they claim it is. The egg stood on the, on the nail. Yeah, right. So they do all the little tests with eggs and things that supposedly work when they're right on the equator. Or the egg will stand on its end if you if you set it correctly. But, you know, I wasn't convinced. I don't know. I'm pretty <laughs> sure the line is around there somewhere, but I'm not convinced either of these theme parks exactly had it right. Ecuador is most famous with tourists, I think, for the Galapagos Islands. And so I took you all the way to South America to see Ecuador. And did we go to the Galapagos Islands? No, Although they were 3,000 miles off the coast, so I understand it partially. Is it really that far? I don't know. I I just know they're way out there. No, you're right. I don't know exactly how far, but even though they're part of Ecuador, it is a long flight to get to the Galapagos Islands. Yeah, so that's what most people go to Ecuador for. We went instead to do a few other things, including going hiking in the mountains. So let me talk a little bit about how Ecuador is put together. There's three different main climate zones other than the Galapagos Islands. There's the Pacific Lowlands on the Pacific coast, the Andean Highlands where we spent our time, and then there's also um, part of the country is in the Amazon Basin as well. So the hike was in the Andean Highlands. Ecuador has a really diverse flora and fauna, as you might expect, having the Galapagos Islands and having the Amazon, but it's less so in the highlands, partially probably because of the altitude, but I think also because that's where most of the people live. Um, It's very densely populated, and as you mentioned, there's farms everywhere, so not a lot of wilderness. And we mentioned, I think, that Ecuador is a Spanish-speaking country, though there's also a significant indigenous population that speaks uh, Quechua, and I'm not clear on this and whether I have this right, but I think the dialect of Quechua that they speak in Ecuador is Quechua, or maybe that's just the English and Spanish pronunciations. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, there's a significant several million people that, that speak, in addition to Spanish, also this indigenous language, which is the same, um, based on the same language that the, the Incas spoke. 
One other interesting thing about the country of Ecuador is that the uh, since 2000, they have been on the U.S. dollar. They had a financial crisis in 2000, and their currency, the Sucre, uh, collapsed. And the dollar was essentially being used informally anyway as a stable currency. And so the government decided to, to make it official and just adopted the dollar as its currency. So what did you think? I mean, you've traveled with our family to multiple countries. And what did you think of going to a country that speaks an entirely different language on a completely different continent, but where you could still use the U.S. dollar? Uh, I think it spoke to the influence of like, I guess the international influence of the United States and how other countries who are developing or less developed or even developed countries have a lot of uh, a lot of influence from the United States and they depend on their stability, on our stability, I guess. Right, right. So it, it's true that the stability of our currency has um, some advantages. One is that it's actually used by several countries around the world. I think it's something like 25 countries that use it in some form or another, if not as an official currency. In any event, so Ecuador is one of those countries where the dollar is their currency. Though I say the dollar, and when we're, we think of the dollar in the United States, we think of a dollar bill. And let me ask you, did Ecuador, in Ecuador, did they have dollar bills? No, we had dollar bills. They did not. (laughs) They had coins. They had coins. That's right. So if you ever wondered when the U.S. government a while back made a lot of Sacagawea dollars and president had dollar coins, whatever happened to all those coins, I think they're all in Ecuador. I think so, too. All right. And despite being on the dollar, that doesn't mean it's an expensive country and that things cost the same as they do in the United States. So, for example, we could go out and, and get a decent meal for, what was it, maybe 2 or $3? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we would we would go to a restaurant and the four of us are our family, you and me and your sister, Sonia, and, and your mom. And we would sit down and we'd have a full meal with multiple courses, including juice and salad and a meal. And the whole thing would cost $10, right? Yeah, that was pretty incredible. That's the price of a burrito bowl in Walnut Creek. <laughs> that's right. In this town where we live, that's the price of one burrito bowl. I remember when we got back, your mom and I went to get coffee at Phil's Coffee, which which I really like, but which is an expensive San Francisco-based coffee place. At Phil's, we ordered two coffees and a croissant, and it was $14. So there's a little sticker shock when we got home. So let's switch now to how you get to Ecuador, You know what the, the steps are to getting to this hike. And so the, the capital city that you should fly into is, is Quito, right? Yeah, we flew through Mexico City first and then to Quito. Is that, that right? Yeah, I think that's right. For folks flying from the west western part of the United States, uh, Mexico City is a hub where there's a lot of transfer flights. We went to Quito at the end of our trip, but I think most people who end up doing this hike would probably go to Quito and then toward where the hike is. We did a little bit of an unusual itinerary. And so Quito is a big capital city, bigger than I expected. It has um, 2 million people in the city proper and about 3.5 million in the metro area. One other thing that's really interesting about Quito is that it's at over 9,350, it's about 9,350 feet in elevation, and it's at over 2,850 meters uh, in elevation. And so it's actually, if you're going to do this hike, which is up in pretty high up in the Andes, 
spending some time in Quito is a good idea just for acclimatization. So we spent a few days there, though, actually at the end of our trip. And, and what did you think about Quito? I thought it was a very beautiful city. We spent most of our time in the old town, I guess the the Spanish town. The colonial yeah. historic center. Yeah, exactly. And so that part of it was very nice. I know that that doesn't speak for all three million people and all the neighborhoods and whatever else. But I think it's definitely worth going to. There are a few uh, spots that you can't miss. I, I did want to go to the hike to the top of the hill where the was it like the angel or the Virgin Mary. There's a big statue. Right. Um, what impression did you get from just the environment of that city? I, I didn't, I have to say, I didn't notice the altitude at that point because it was later in our trip. That's and, true. Uh, Cuenca, which I know we'll talk about in a little while, is also pretty high up there in the mountains. And so that didn't bother me and it didn't strike me as anything. But I remember the the expanse of the city. You could see 10 miles away on the edge of some mountain, some part of the city, still some neighborhood. And so it was pretty... It was just big. It was you could see forever. I remember there were views where you could see down a valley and you couldn't like you could see houses until it was smog and then the horizon. Yeah, it's it's a it's a spread out sprawling city that goes yeah. for it goes for a long way through a long valley. And so you mentioned Cuenca, and I think one thing I would just mention it's it's at the other end of the country. It's it's um, several several hours, probably eight hours driving or a short flight south of keto but i think it's worth checking out if you have time and it's actually where we spent most of our time before hiking the kilo toa loop it's about three hundred and thirty thousand people and uh double that in the uh metropolitan area it's also as justin mentioned pretty high up in the mountains although it's a little less than keto but it's at about eight thousand four hundred feet or two thousand five hundred sixty meters um, but I think I liked it because it felt like a lot more approachable city than Quito. It's still metropolitan, but it didn't feel like a massive city. What What did you think about Cuenca? I thought Cuenca was beautiful. I, I'm always more of a fan of a, a middle-sized urban area. I don't love huge cities very much. And I'm also, I live in a suburb that's 65,000 people. So I don't want to be in somewhere that is out in the middle of the boonies either. And so I thought it was a good mix of um, old colonial town plus pleasant city folk and just people happy to have you. I thought everybody was nice. Yeah, definitely a welcoming city. And Americans in both of these cities, Americans are not strangers. There's a a significant expat communities. Um, I think Ecuador has fairly easy visa requirements and as we mentioned, it's inexpensive. And so both of these cities, Cuenca and Quito, uh, have areas the locals derisively a bit refer to as Gringolandia, uh, because there are neighborhoods where it's mostly North Americans, Americans and Canadians. You mentioned both of them have interesting historic city centers, both of which are UNESCO World Heritage Sites based on their colonial history. And we actually spent two weeks in Cuenca at a Spanish language school before we did our hike. And we had a really a really great homestay where we stayed in an apartment attached to uh, a local's home and the local provided breakfast and dinner as part of our homestay and, and wonderful conversation throughout the time we were there and really, really nice people who, who we still keep in touch with. And I guess I should mention the Spanish school, you can go to these throughout Latin America. 
or even Spain, of course. And there are lots of Spanish language schools in Quito and Cuenca. But I think one of the reasons people, if if you're a traveler who plans to, to go to Latin America quite a bit, one of the reasons people go to language schools in Ecuador is the Spanish they speak in Ecuador is considered to be a fairly neutral form of Spanish that, and what that means, I, I know there's no real neutral Spanish, but what that means is it's easier for English speakers to learn. And if you speak a Spanish that is, quote, neutral, it's supposedly easier for Spanish speakers of various countries to understand you speaking as well. So in any event, it's 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 something to think about. If you trek in another country, don't just go hike in their mountains. Take advantage of the cultural opportunities they have. And so, Justin, what did you think of, of going to a Spanish school in a Spanish-speaking country? At first, I thought that going to school over the summer was not the most exciting <laughs> idea in the world. But I actually, it, some of my best memories of that trip were going to school because the teacher was a, she's a great woman and she was a great Patrici- teacher. Patricia. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting. I felt like I had a leg up on you and mom who haven't been to school for a little while. <laughs> So it was nice to be the expert at something, not Spanish, but just school, eight o'clock mornings, although I'm not an expert at that by any measure. Yeah. And your sister, who's in college, didn't exactly make it to all of our morning classes. No, but you know, she put in an effort. It was good. And so, and also, I guess I have to ask, we all ended up in the same class because we have relatively similar levels of Spanish, all sort of intermediate speakers. What did you think of going to school with your parents and your sister for two weeks? I mean, it it's an interesting vibe for any class to have a random group of characters together. And when you know them by name and you know their whole history and they're your parents and your sister, I think it can be sometimes better when talking about something that we shared together in the past, like trying to get some point across that we'd mentioned before at some point in time or talking about a trip or whatever. But it was also, I felt like we graded on each other just a little bit, not a lot, but (laughs) I mean, you always have like your family squabbles and when you're in a classroom, that tension can sometimes come out. Yeah, I think that's right. It was, it was interesting to spend that much time in a setting where we're trying to learn something that is different than what we're used to. Um, But for me, I thought it was interesting because it's not something a parent often gets a chance to do, which is to be in school with their kids. And so I thought that was pretty cool. While we were in Cuenca, and so I know we're going to get to the hike, I swear. But while we were in Cuenca, there were two outdoor uh, day trips that I think are worth mentioning for for the the listeners of this show who obviously are, are interested in outdoor activities. One is we went to El Cajas National Park. And that's up in the, the Paramo, which is the a word for the Alpine tundra region of the Andes. So it's basically at the crest of the Andes, where the Andes, if you keep going, you end up on the Pacific side. So it's right at the top of the Andes in this part of the Andes Mountains. And the the Paramo in El Cajas is at 4,300 meters, so about 13,500 feet up at the crest of the Andes. And we also went to uh, Ingapirca, and Ingapirca is uh, Incan ruins. Uh, the Incan Empire got as far north as Ecuador, and so there are some Incan ruins in Ecuador, and there's some stories about the, the conquer of that part of Ecuador by the Incans. Um, so what did you think of, of these day trips to El Cajas and Ingapirca? There are two very big trips, so I'll start with El Cajas. 
I thought it was a beautiful national park. The first spot we went to, there was a lake and there was a, a tour that went around the lake and talked about all the the plants and animals that were in the area. And I learned a lot about what kind of ecosystems they had there and how things have changed uh, from all the people coming in and setting up their farms. And I was very grateful that they did have a national park that they preserved. I thought that was, that meant a lot. And uh, it was, it was a, I remember there was a lot of clouds. It was, it felt a little bit like we were in The Hobbit, just almost a fantastical kind of setting of just somewhere I'd never been before, had no way to relate to it in any way, just to experience it. And so I thought that was the, what's it called? El Cajas. I thought El Cajas was really special in that way. Yeah, I, I agree. It is an interesting, and I, I think it's common. I mean, they call some of these areas cloud forests, and I think it is very common to have those that kind of misty, sort of cloudy experience when you're in these areas. Yes, yeah, so that that was a lot of fun. We did a couple of hikes, hiked around some lakes, hiked point to point, and had a van pick us up. At, that We had a driver that picked us up at the other end of the hike, and so that was a lot of fun, and, and had a guide. And what about the Incan ruins? What did you think of that? I thought the Incan ruins were very cool. I've I've always been a fan of, I guess, the Aztecs and the Incans and the Mayans and just to see how all of the South American and uh, what's it called? And Central, American. Central American tribes have uh, existed and how they were influenced by the Spanish who came over. And so it was really cool to see like what that looked like, what the rocks felt like. And the tour guide we had was amazing and straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. It was very impressive and it was a special day. Yeah. Yeah. Props to Carlos. He was great. Yeah. And it was during some festival that we went to, right? Yeah. So we'll get to that in a minute. I will talk about the festival. I think that's something that that listeners might want to hear about. So that's a little detour into the southern part of Ecuador and Cuenca and some of the outdoor activities there. But let's let's refocus now back on um, what we're here to talk about. So after you leave Quito, you're likely what you're going to do is head south to Cotopaxi province because that's where the hike is. And the way you get there, you're going to go to a, a town or a city called Latacunga. And you probably will be taking a bus, which is a couple hour bus ride from Quito. Very easy to get a bus, very inexpensive. And Cotopaxi volcano really dominates the landscape between Quito and Latacunga. It's one of the highest active volcanoes in the world. It's at an elevation of 5,897 feet, I'm sorry, meters, 5,897 meters and 19,347 feet. It's perfectly conical. So it has this look like a, like if, you know, if you were a little kid and drew a picture of a volcano, that's what you're drawing. And it's covered in a thick blanket of snow and ice at the top, even though we're almost at the equator. And uh, it really is sort of the the main landscape feature. But we saw it for the first time when we were coming back from the hike Mm -hmm. on a bus down to La Tacunga. And do you remember that coming into view and what you thought? Yeah, uh, I had to get woken up from my nap, I think. (laughs) Um, But it dominated the landscape. When when you were within view of it, like you could almost feel its presence because it's just so massive. And for being almost at the equator, there's probably a good five to 10,000 feet at the top covered in ice. And it's pretty cool to see that when you're in a place where you'd think in your mind's eye that it should be, I don't know, 100 degrees and humid. 
Yeah, and and so as another major outdoor outdoor activity in Ecuador, uh, climbing Cotopaxi is should be at the top of your list. It's not a highly technical climb. It does require acclimatization, obviously. And the standard route is to hike from a refuge on the mountain to the summit. And so the way you do it is the first day you hike up to the refuge, which is about a 300 meter gain in elevation. And you spend the night at 4,800 meters or 15,750 feet, roughly. And then there's a six hour hike the next day to the summit, which a lot of people do starting at midnight and get there for sunrise. So that's a two day total hike, including the night before. And you can get outfitted in Latacunga. There's climbing companies, uh, adventure companies that'll take you on that kind of trip. And so Justin, next time in Ecuador, are you going to climb Cotopaxi? Yeah, I, I was thinking about it. And I, I think I would only because it's, it's a very common trail. It's a very common trek at least. And, uh, it's it's popular and it's 20,000 feet up almost so it'd be pretty cool to be that high up on anything and so yeah I think I would all right well we'll save that one for next time Mm -hmm. so let's talk about Latacunga which is where you're probably gonna spend the night before you go hike the trail it's the capital of Cotopaxi uh, province and is the jumping off point for the Kilo Toa loop or for climbing Cotopaxi It's like a lot of these cities in the Andean part of Ecuador. It's on a high plateau. It's over 9,000 feet up. And it's only 25 kilometers from Cotopaxi, which is north of it. And there are the the higher mountains of the Andes, um, higher than the plain that it's on, are to the west. Latacunga is about 90 kilometers south of Quito, which is about 55 miles. One interesting thing about that region that I didn't know before we went through it is how big floriculture is there. There are plantations to grow roses and there's an airport in Latacunga and I'm imagining they probably fly flowers directly out of there to markets around the world. It seems to be a big part of the economy there is growing flowers in that region. Latacunga is about 100,000 people. A good percentage of the people in that area are indigenous. The, the Quichuas de la Sierra, which is the Quechua people in English, and as I mentioned before, they speak the Quechua dialect that the um, that is related to the language or a dialect of the language the Incas spoke. The people who are indigenous to Ecuador originated in Peru, um, but extend through many countries of South America, though primarily today in Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador. They're, they are distinct peoples in different places. There's different groups, for example, closest to Cuenca were the Kenyari but they do have the same language. The women dress really interestingly. It's they have they wear a bowler hat which is brought over apparently by the British railway workers in the 1920s. And different groups wear different colors. Some of them wear a black hat and some of them they used a sort of white plaster to make the hats white, um which I thought was interesting in a country where it rains so often because they had to cover them in plastic to keep the plaster from washing off. Mm-hmm. So it it seems to be a um, identity thing where you can identify with particular groups of indigenous peoples depending on the color or style, slight changes in the style of the bowler hat. And they also wore very colorful skirts and shawls that seem to vary depending on the group as well. Um, so that that's pretty interesting. And, and I think similar to what I've seen from photos of, of Peru and Bolivia as well. Yeah, one thing about the hat is that uh, in America, they would call them Panama hats. 
but they're actually Ecuadorian. And so in Ecuador, they don't call them Panama hats. What was the name they had for them? It was yeah. like straw hats, but in Spanish. That's right. I'm not sure if they're exactly the same hat, because I think more of the men were wearing the, quote, Panama hats, which are actually, yeah. were made in Ecuador originally for people working on the Panama Canal, which is how they got the name, even though they're not made in Panama, uh, or not originally. I think the bowler hats are slightly different that the women were wearing, but yeah, they're very similar hats. And yeah, so it's interesting that they have these very Western-looking Hats, Western meaning European looking, I guess. So there's almost 4 million indigenous people in Ecuador from at least 12 different groups. And as I mentioned before, there's a strong indigenous culture in rural areas. So talking about Latacunga, one of the things that's uh, most interesting there is the Fiesta de la Mama Negra. And this may be something, if you're thinking of doing this hike, you might want to plan your trip around. We didn't, so we didn't see the Fiesta, but it seems like quite a party. So let me talk about that a little bit. Latacunga was founded in 1534. Uh, it was colonized by the Spanish due to rich mineral resources. Today in Cotopaxi province, they mine gold, silver, copper, lead, and zinc, and gold is the top commodity. Uh, so you can see why they would have developed a city there. It's obviously in a very volcanically active region, and because of that, it's been destroyed by earthquakes multiple times. Between 1698 and 1798, it was destroyed four times by earthquakes. Cotopaxi has erupted many times, including as recently as 2015. So the story goes that in 1742, Cotopaxi erupted in September, September 23rd and 24th. The citizens asked the Virgen de la Merced, the Virgin of Mercy, uh, to save the city. The city survived, and this fiesta was created in honor of that event and, the, and, and in, in honor of the Virgin of Mercy for saving the city. And so that's the story, but it also, the September date coincides with an indigenous equinox festival, um, and there's also a theory that it was born out of the end of slavery in Ecuador, which happened in 1852. In any event, there's a, the fiesta in La Tacunga is twice a year in September and November, September is apparently a more indigenous-focused version, and November is more around the Day of the Dead and Independence Day for Ecuador, so maybe more Spanish-focused, though we didn't see it, so I'm not really sure on that. La Tacunga, in that area, there's Spanish, there's Incas, there's Ayamaras, there's Mayans, and there's Africans because of all these cultures coming together to work in uh, the mines. And as a result, the parade has a lot of colorful characters representing these different cultures. There's the Angel of the Stars, which represents the Archangel Gabriel. There's the Moorish King. There's Los Huacos, which is an Ayamaran or an indigenous character that, where there's lots of folks wearing white robes. And there's the Camisonas, which are men colorfully dressed as women and represent the wives of soldiers. Not exactly sure how that developed. And they carry a whip. So make of that what you will. I don't really know. We didn't see it. Um, and there's lots of dancers and musicians and marching bands. And, and Mama Negra is a man dressed up as Mama Negra, which means black mama. And Mama Negra is a combination of the Virgin of Mercy and African deities. So it really is an interesting mix of cultures. And is elaborately costumed and carries dolls representing her children. And apparently sprays milk and water on the parade goers. They give out candy and wine. 
And so this seems like a really unique, interesting festival that could give you a lot of sort of sense of what the culture of that region is about in the area you're going to be hiking. Um, late September is still the dry season or September is still the dry season in Ecuador. So a September trip around this planned around this festival to Atacunga would be um, probably a, an interesting idea. So we did not see the Fiesta de la Mama Negra, but we did see two other celebrations. And Justin, you mentioned one of them. So what can you say about Inti Raimi? Oh, that was the one at, uh, at Ingapurka. Uh, yeah, exactly. And in Cuenca, where there was a large parade. Oh, yeah, in front of the museum. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. Was that the festival of like the king of the or of the Incans? It's a sort of sun god festival or okay. sun festival. Let me let That's me give right. you a little information, a little background on that. So it's it, it coincides with the summer solstice, which in Ecuador is in most of Ecuador is the shortest day of the year because it's south of the equator, but not by much because it's so close to the equator. So most of the year, the days are about 12 hours of light and dark. But Inti is the Incan sun god. And so this honors Inti for heat and energy that allows plants to grow. It's sort of a harvest festival. Oh, that's right. That's right. But it's become, I think today, a festival that celebrates indigenous culture primarily. Yeah, there were a bunch of different tribes throughout the parade or different representations of tribes maybe and they all had their own dances and their own co or not costume uh, yeah they were caught i think they were okay. definitely cost some of them were probably their outfits i don't know what the right word would be but yeah i think there was a mix of some wearing their sort of finest clothes and others wearing what would be more costumes mm -hmm. yeah so it was one of the longest parades i've ever seen yeah it went on for hours but really, really interesting. And there was a lot of indigenous produce, foods, and liquors. Mm -hmm. And so can you, do you remember what kui is? Yeah, uh, that's cooked uh, guinea pig, right? That's exactly right. Kui, yeah. kui is a local delicacy, which uh, I tried. I don't believe I ever tried. I, I think I would, I meant to get cooey and then I had some Spanish mishap and then I ended up getting pork. <laughs> yeah, where you were trying to order it in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what happened, but how was it? Uh, it tastes like chicken. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it was fine. It was nothing. I mean, it didn't taste, it wasn't so special that I feel like I would have to have it again, but yeah. it was interesting to taste and Apparently the word cooey is because that's the sound they make. And we were in one area where we did see some guinea oh, pigs yeah. and they do kind of say cooey, cooey. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what, do you know what chicha is? Yes, I tried chicha. Oh, you did? I did. What is chicha? Chicha, it's, it's a kind of liquor that I, I can't remember what its base is, but the women of the tribes that make it or the areas that make it, they end up chewing up like maybe the sugar cane or whatever I think it's it is. corn is it corn yeah they, they end up like chewing it up and then spitting it out and then it ends up uh fermenting and then they use that as their liquor yeah it's basically a corn beer and you're right the fermentation originally i don't know if it's always done this way now i'd like to think it wasn't since i tried it but it may have been but it's 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 a liquor that's created as you said the women chew the uh, the corn and then they spit it into a barrel and it's sort of a communal activity and that starts the fermentation. And so it's a it's sort of light, not heavy alcohol, lighter alcohol, corn, beer. And that was also something that was uh, on display at the Inti Raimi Festival. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was getting when I got it because I remember <laughs> learning about the 
Chicha? Is that what Chicha. Called? Chicha. I remember learning about it just uh, 30 minutes before and then walking around with Sonia through the festival just trying things. And I saw Chicha and I was like, oh, I I heard about that. Uh, I may as well try it. And then I had it. I finished it. And then Sonia told me, oh, that's the one where they spit it out. <laughs> so, uh, okay. <laughs> All right. And it so tasted they- pretty good, though. Yeah, it's it wasn't cold as I remember. It was sort of like a warm beer, so it made me, it made me it made all the more real my thought that it's made out of spit. Mm-hmm. All right, and then the other festival that we came across was not a uh, indigenous one, but a Catholic one, which was Corpus Christi, mm-hmm. and which is a commemoration of Jesus's Last Supper, and it lasts a week um, and starts about two months after Easter Sunday. In Cuenca, what was the main way they sell? There were two things that struck out to me about how they celebrated Corpus Christi. Can you think of what those were? I'm not sure what they were to you, but I remember the fireworks on the cathedral. That's one. That, they were on the cathedral. Yeah, like <laughs> attached to the front of the big church. Yeah. yeah. And they would blow up in the sparks. We'd get, I don't know, 20 feet from the ground. It was pretty crazy. I'm not sure what the other one would be. All the sweets. Oh, my gosh. How could I forget? Yeah, there were probably 500 stands with basically the same 30 or 40 candies. or uh, I don't know how many there were, but they all had their own that they'd made from the last month at home that they brought to the festival. And it filled up probably five or six blocks surrounding the church or the cathedral, rather. Yeah, I think the story was that it may have started as a way to entice kids to go to church during Corpus Christi really? to have sweets available <laughs> afterward. I don't. Know I can see that working. <laughs> yeah, maybe I don't know, but that's certainly man. I got sick on eating too much candy. Yeah, um, some of them were really good. Some of them were okay. <laughs> yeah, not exactly the. I mean, it's not the same kind of sweets I maybe used to for the most mm-hmm. part. But the, yeah, they were good. Some of them were great, and our host family went with us out one night and shared all their favorites with us. Yeah, that was nice. The fireworks, as you mentioned, were pretty crazy, and they're every night. And they use the, they call them castillos, I think, the big towers. Yeah. Where they basically they had some of them, like you said, were right on the cathedral, attached to it, and spin, big spinning wheels and mm-hmm. things like that. But they also bring these different groups of the city make these big towers that are like thirty or forty feet high, so more than ten meters high. And then they all the fireworks come off of those. I think one night we saw one of those. Oh, it looks yeah. like a big person. It's like a big statue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And I think on that statue, there was some spinning wheel of fireworks that they were shooting. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And so in some ways, these are kind of competing fiestas, right? You have the Spanish Catholic festival and this indigenous sun festival. And they're around the same time. So it's um, it highlights both of the main cultures of Ecuador uh, at the same time. So if you decide to go to Ecuador in June to do this hike you might have the opportunity to see both of those festivals in whatever area of Ecuador you're in. So let's talk about the trail itself. I know it took a long time getting here, but you know, if you're going to go all the way to another country to hike, you should do more than just hikes. So that's the reason I'm spending so much time talking about some of these other opportunities and things to see. So the Kilotoa loop itself, it's a route that connects trails and dirt roads between rural towns through small farms, as we talked about growing mostly corn and lupin. There are lots of sheep, pigs, other uh, farm animals as well. It, the route is not really one route. There's dogs. A, you forgot dogs. <laughs> yes, there are lots of stray dogs. <laughs> There's lots of options for hiking in this region. Um, so it's not really one route, but I think one main route, the route that we took is what has emerged. And it's a route between two of the bigger towns. Uh, it's a one about a three-day 
three to four day, depending on how you do it, one-way route from Sikchos to Kilotoa. And it's actually not a loop. I've been calling this the Kilotoa loop, but you could extend the route to a week and loop back to Sikchos through some other towns if you wanted to make it a loop. But for us, it was essentially a a three-day, one-way trip. And you could do a lot of it probably by bus if you're not, you know, if you had an injury or something like that. You could go to these areas. There are roads, some of them paved, some of them not. So you could get to some of these areas and go to some of the bigger towns and see some of their market days, for example, uh, even if you didn't do the hike itself. So I'm not sure of the history of the route, and I spent some time trying to find it and couldn't. But I do have a theory. Do you know what my theory is? No. Okay, so my theory is that the particular route we ended up doing has really been promoted by the hostels along that route. Yeah. yeah. And for example, the signage along the route that we did was pretty good. Mm -hmm. And it was all done by the Cloud Forest Hostel in Chugchilan. So I'm giving it a free plug there. Mm -hmm. And so they, they basically signed the whole route. And it makes me think that the route has developed over time as the sort of logical way to go, but that now the route has really been sort of set uh, or not set in stone, but finalized in a way that people follow the same route um, by some of the hostels along the way. So the route itself really is about up and down, or rather I should say down and up. Mm -hmm. It's more starting out high, going into a deep Canyon and climbing the rest of the day until you get to your destination. Is that about sum it up? Yeah. The river Canyon was about as sheer and massive as you could have asked for. And you start at the top and then you spend the first half of your day going to the very bottom where you get to go and see the river up close. And then you get (laughs) to go right back up the other side. And it's more or less the same canyon throughout. And you kind of just go back and forth and then back again. And each time is, what, three, four thousand feet down and then right back up to the top. Yeah, that's that about sums it up. So it's 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 no no joke. It's a it's a difficult hike. As far as the gain and loss of, of altitude and or elevation, I should say, each day. And the, as I mentioned, the itinerary that I'm covering here is a three-day itinerary that's about 40 kilometers or about 25 miles long, um, which may not sound like a lot, but obviously there is the big up and down factor that makes it um, a challenging hike still. Even with that, even with the challenge, you can finish each day by mid-afternoon and have some time to socialize and relax and clean up at the end of each hiking day it's highly doable like it's a severe up and down but it's gorgeous there are a lot of people on the trail that are all ages all from all backgrounds different countries everybody and it's you get to end at a nice hostel which i think we might be getting to but like you get a nice dinner and a bed to sleep in and then you go to the next place and it's it's a tough hike but it's doable and it's beautiful that that's exactly right. The range of altitude on this hike is between twenty eight hundred meters and thirty eight hundred meters, and so you know you go all the way from about nine thousand feet to over almost thirteen thousand feet. Uh, the highest point being the finish of the hike. So <laughs> if you go the direction we went, you're going uphill a lot at the end. And so as I mentioned before, it's helpful to acclimatize in Quito or Latacunga, and so that's why it might be interesting to see, spend some time seeing those cities and maybe time yourself visiting Ecuador around a festival so that you have a few days to really acclimatize to make the hike a little bit easier for you. It's a hike you can do year round, but um, June to September is the dry season. We went in June. 
there really wasn't much rain. Did you, do you have any thoughts on the weather that we experienced? It was pretty mild. There weren't any, oh, there were a few days in Cuenca that were really hot, but it was just a quick uh, burst of heat. And then there were a few days of rain that were not too bad, but it, it was there. But overall, for most of the trip, it was pretty uh, livable, pretty temperate. Yeah. And I think on the trail itself, we only had, we had rain. I want to say it was the third day of hiking. We were heading up out of this brutal canyon we had gone down into. And there was actually a little gazebo, a little overlook kind of place. And we got there just as it started raining. And so we were able to get out of the rain and have lunch under the shelter of a gazebo before we continued our hike, which was actually really nice. And it was the only time along the whole trip that there was something like that. So it was kind of a perfect timing situation. Yeah. So during the trip itself, during the hike itself, not much rain. On that third day, though, there was like the threat of rain the whole day. It only rained for like an hour, but you could like the clouds were there. It felt a little bit gloomy, but it was it only rained for a little bit. Yeah. And you mentioned about the sun coming out. And and that is one thing I think it's worth mentioning to people about the weather in Ecuador is when the sun comes out, you are at the equator. Yeah. (laughs) And when it comes out, even and you're higher up, so you're a little bit closer to it, less atmosphere. You really need to protect your skin. And it just gets hot really fast when the clouds disappear. Yeah, the sun on your skin is just different. It's it's a different feeling than when you're at the beach in California where you get a little bit of sunscreen and you feel okay and you can stand out there for a couple hours. If you're out in the sun in Ecuador for 10 minutes and you don't have protection, you're going to feel it. That's right. And so you mentioned the trail was active, but I didn't think it was crowded. I felt like it was a reasonable amount of people. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. And there's no there's no need for any permits to do this hike, so you don't have to worry about that. Let's talk a little bit about the gear needed to do this hike. So first, you need to carry all the clothes that you're going to need for the for the trip. There's not going to be a there's no luggage being sent ahead or anything like that, which you can do in some places in Europe and other trekking destinations. So you carry whatever clothes you need. As we mentioned, you need rain gear or you need, we mentioned the rain, so you definitely need some gear to protect against that and certainly sun protection. And for me, that usually means wearing, I like to, in these kinds of climates to wear long sleeve pants and shirts that are fairly light just so I don't have to use a ton of sunscreen and a pretty good hat to protect against the sun as well. One thing you will need is cash. Uh, most places on the route only take cash uh, because you're in a, a rural area. There's not a lot of places that take credit cards. I think the one exception there is if you reserve hostels in advance, you may be able to may be able to put a deposit down. But even at some of the hostels, we had to pay the balance in cash. I think one thing that's helpful to bring when you're going from hostel to hostel rather than camping, like on other kinds of hikes, is to at least have one nice change of clothes for when you're at the hostel. I'll preview what I'm going to mention in a minute. You should bring a bathing suit. And there's no need to carry food other than snacks. The hostels serve dinner and breakfast. And you can buy a sack lunch to go, which makes it easy to have something to eat throughout the day while you're hiking. And similarly, there's no no need to bring any kind of camping gear. This is really a, a hostel trek. Regarding the hostels, we, we reserved them in advance for the three nights of the hike. I think there's enough space where you don't have to reserve hostels in advance if you just want to wing it. But there are a couple of hostels that are better than others in a couple of locations, one of which we stayed in. And for those two hostels, you definitely need to reserve them in advance if you want to stay. One is Lululama, 
Highly recommend. That was, a, that was my favorite, I think. Yes. And the other is called Black Sheep Inn, which is in Chugchilan, which we didn't stay in, but people who, who did stay there really highly recommended it. So if you want to stay in one of those two hostels, you need to reserve them. Otherwise, probably not uh, much to worry about there. As far as the way we carry gear, we had four of us in our group, our family. Two of us, Sonia and my wife, Andy, carried day packs. And that's really all they needed. They carried their change of clothes and the few other items. And Justin, you and I each carried a backpacking pack, but I think it was like half full probably. Yeah, it was on the very light side. It, it didn't feel like much of a an issue at all. Right. And so just based on the gear I described and without camping gear, you don't need to carry that much. Yeah. One thing that uh, if you're staying at hostels that it is nice to have is to bring your own sheets. That's something that we had. We had a, a pillowcase and a like a sheet that you could lay over a twin size bed so you don't have to like lay in other people's whatever like you you get your own comfortable quote-unquote sleeping bag and you don't have to think about anything yeah so that's that's a good point when if you're traveling in urban hostels people are familiar with that idea of bringing a a a hostel sheet basically where it's like a, a sleeping bag shaped sheet where you can put that on top of the bed and that's a good idea to do on a trekking trip as well for the maps for the area, I downloaded to a program called an app called maps.me, a step-by-step guide to hiking this trail. And that can, I highly recommend the blog Whirlwind Travelers. So I went to whirlwindtravelers.com and downloaded their step-by-step guide to hiking in the Kilo Toa Loop. That goes right on to maps.me, which can be used offline, meaning you don't have to be connected to the internet while you're using it. You can just use your phone's GPS. And I also printed a backup. And I thought the directions worked perfectly. We never got lost. Mm-mm. The trails were well marked, to be fair, but the maps definitely helped. Yeah, so the routes are pretty well signed. I think the one thing to, to worry about, not worry about, or the one thing to consider is that because it switches back and forth between roads and trails, between dirt roads and trails, it can be easy to miss a turnoff, mm-hmm. even with the signs. So um, having the the waypoints on my phone through maps.me and the really helpful directions from Whirlwind Travelers made that really easy for us. So a couple of other things about logistics for the hike. One thing you're going to do is leave, if you have other bags with you, for example, other luggage that you might use for staying in keto or or other city areas or whatever other equipment you have, you're going to want to leave that in Latacunga so you don't have to carry it. The hotels in Latacunga are familiar with this drill and they all have a system for doing that. We stayed in Hotel Tiana, which was, you know, a hostel, nothing special, but it was fine. You can leave luggage there for $1 per bag per day and they have a basement where you can lock your luggage up. I've heard one of the other hotels in town called La Posada uh, allows free bag storage. So those are a couple of options for um, leaving your other bags there in Latacunga when you go on the hike. To start the hike in Sigchos, you can take a bus uh, or a taxi to Sigchos from Latacunga. A bus would be much cheaper, but because there were four of us and because we wanted to hike the same day we were traveling to Sigchos and have time to do that, we took a taxi. Certainly more the more luxury route to go on getting to, to Sigchos. We got there early in the day and we were able to have lunch in Sigchos, an early lunch before we headed out for hiking for the day. And Sigchos was a decent sized town with restaurants and small stores uh, where you could buy last minute snacks or water if you needed it 
Yeah, they definitely had a some sort of small industry for the tourist uh, trekkers. That's right. And so, see, a few things to, to keep in mind for this hike. One is, I think we've mentioned it several times, but it's worth reiterating. This is a sort of bucolic, rural scenery hike. It's not wilderness. Um, you're going to be hiking through farms. And as Justin mentioned, these farms are climbing every hillside and every inch of this area is cultivated. But it does give you a really nice sort of peaceful scene to be following through throughout the hike of lots of corn and beans. It and gives then, you an appreciation for the corn and the beans when they're delivered to you from the top of these mountains, too. That's right. And for the most part, you come across people just going about their daily lives. As we also mentioned, though, despite that it's not a wilderness hike, it's there are fantastic views and beautiful landscape, interesting towns, and a lot of interesting, rich local culture. One of the things I'll just mention, there was one thing that I found bizarre, which is all the eucalyptus trees. Mm-hmm. The eucalyptus trees, as you may know, are native to Australia. Uh, They came to Ecuador in the late 1800s and were planted in the mountains of Ecuador in the 1950s and 1960s. But they've become an invasive species. Interestingly, I grew up in Pacifica, California, just south of San Francisco. And two of the main plants we have there that make me think of the area I grew up in are eucalyptus and pampas grass. Pampas grass is actually native to the Andes. It's actually from Ecuador and that area. But it was interesting to be so far from home and so high up in the Andes and see a terrain that was full of eucalyptus and pampas grass in some strange way reminded me of home. In any event, the eucalyptus can be pretty destructive to the land and it's it really is damaging to water sources. It's used as a windbreak for fuel and for construction it's um, grown in plantations so they can be sold for industrial uses too, for wood pulp. So it's, I think it's a controversial topic that there's so much um, of this Australian species growing in the middle of the Andes. For some, I think it, it does help them economically. And for others, you know, the long-term environmental degradation may be more of an issue. So you mentioned earlier the dogs. Let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing. If you read any guidebook, or you look at blogs about this hike, a lot of what you're going to hear is how aggressive dogs are and how you're going to need trekking poles to fight them off. Is that what happened? Not even close. So what happened? (laughs) Every dog is your best friend because you have food. And so they'll either leave you alone or they'll just look at you like they want food. And there was one dog in particular. It was like this little white terrier mutt something or other. And we started walking from, was that Chuchalan? Chuchalan, yes. Chuchalan, yeah. We started walking on our final day of the trek. Um, we were going down to the river at this point. Yep. And it was like a two, three, four miles down to the bottom. And this dog just walked the entire way with us, all the way to the point where we had to split off the road and start going up. And I think we only left him because he lost us at some point. But it was... It was pretty incredible to have a just some other uh, adventurer with us who just wanted to see the trails and to hang out with us. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. And I've seen this, and it's not the only country where I've seen this. Often the dogs have found that their best strategy to survive is to be nice to people because people might give them something. And, and We this- should learn from the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and so this little white dog followed us for quite a ways, and we eventually, unfortunately, had to chase the dog off. 
uh, which I didn't like doing, but if, you know, that's what we had to do. But again, it wasn't, it didn't, it was the opposite of dangerous. The dog was very friendly and, and not in any way threatening. I think the only time I saw aggressive dogs on this trip, there was one part we went along a fence line just before we got to Isin Levi the first day. And there were some dogs that barked. Oh, yeah. There were some dogs that came at us barking, but we were right along their fence of their yard. I don't think it would have been any different anywhere else in the world if it's a, you went by a, a yard that the dog lives in. So I didn't experience the the aggressive dogs for the most part that people talk about, but it is something to be aware of possibly. One other thing that to be aware of is uh, kids that may come up to you and ask for candy uh, or for money or both. Did you have that happen with you? Not for me because I was a kid and because I was with adults, but I know you and mom both had that. Yeah. So we had a kid come up. We've had multiple kids come up. Uh, at one point, a young girl came up and asked for candy. I think we had one little piece of candy left from our morning or something like that. We may have given it to her or maybe we didn't. I can't even remember at this point. But what I do remember is the next thing that came out of her mouth was, oh, can I have some money? I don't want to judge it. I mean, obviously, they don't have a lot of resources in that area. And I know people have different philosophies on how to handle this sort of thing when traveling. But um, just be aware that it may happen. Then you'll probably handle it better if you're at least aware of it in advance. So let's talk about now the basic itinerary and the accommodations for this hike. So day one, day one, you start in Sikchos and you hike to Isenlivi. Like we've said it's down a river canyon through some farms and up the other side that's kind of the drill for this hike so i won't say more than that about the the actual mechanics of the day uh, you can look up the point to point directions on various websites as i've talked about but i will mention lululama mm-hmm. so when you get to isinlivi at the end of your first day of hiking if you can do it if you hopefully you've reserved a room at lululama uh, it's one of the best hostels I've ever stayed in anywhere. If you're inclined to spend the money, it has private rooms with a fireplace and a view. If not, there are shared rooms. So for example, uh, my wife and I stayed in a private room and the kids stayed in a shared room. The food is fantastic. There's a diverse group of hikers from all over the world. The highlight and the reason before I said to bring a bathing suit on this hike is they have a hot tub and sauna. So jacuzzi and sauna that has free hours in the afternoon when people finish up their hikes. That is a really nice way to finish the day. Did So how'd that go for you, Justin? That was pretty nice to be able to take a hot shower and then jump in the spa for a little while. I was impressed with just the infrastructure to develop that at, what, 11,000 feet at some on some mountain. And it's like this glass room because you look out and... You can see, I don't know, 20 miles away. You can probably see Kilatoa. I can't remember, but it was in that direction, so you may have been able to. Just an amazing view and a neat experience. Agreed. They had a nice balcony there as well. And then there's Tito. What do you remember about Tito? He's the dog, right? No. No? <laughs> that wasn't the, or the St. Bernard? No. Oh, yes. I forgot the St. Bernard. Yes, they have a St. Bernard. What was that guy's name? I forgot, but it's on their website if you want to look up. Oh, Bernard. yeah. He has an Instagram. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Their St. Bernard, the owners have, uh, has his own Instagram account, so you can yeah. follow him. He's, he's a nice dog. He's I, big. He's he, very big. <laughs> I was thinking of his actually bigger friend, who is Tito. Oh, the llama. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's apparently called Lulu Llama because when Tito, Lulu, I think means baby for like baby llama. 
And when they started the place, Tito was much younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Tito's the llama. He's a black llama that lives there and was right outside of our um, hotel room while we were there. So definitely check out Lulu Llama if you can as the destination for day one in the town of Isinlivi. In day day two, you go from Isinlivi to Chugchilan. Again, you're going down a big river canyon and back up. This time it's the Rio Tawachi. And it goes through farms, and there's a couple of small towns you go through. And there's a pretty steep climb coming up to Chugchilan, very steep, actually. And there's actually a really nice lookout point for a photo before you quite get to Chugchilan. Yeah, it was neat. It was just like this spot that was built by the some people who lived out there, some farmland, and they developed like these benches and a fence and a nice place to hang out and take amazing pictures with beautiful background it's a nice way to take a break as you're hiking up this steep incline it's sort of at the two maybe two-thirds of the way up before you get to Chugchilan. i think that area has a name i can't remember what it was but there were a few houses there along that little dirt road where that lookout area was yeah yeah i think you're right when you get to the end of the day of this hike there is some road walking you could follow a trail but i think it's a much longer route and at this point you're tired from just climbing out of the canyon so the road walking's not so bad to get into Chugchilan. Yeah. Do you remember the motorcycles? No. Were they just coming by? or They had like three, four people on them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That... <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a scene when we were walking up the road to the final place. They had like these motorcycles with like one driver and three kids. Yeah. <laughs> I think part of it was that kids were getting out of school. Yeah, right then. yeah, yeah. So yeah. there was a lot of kids trying to get home from school and getting shuttled back and forth. Yeah. We stayed in Cloud Forest Hostel the second night, which is pretty basic, but also nice. You know, as far as it's affordable and clean, had a room with a bathroom, I think for about 15 to $20. There's a hammock in front of every room, which we all took advantage of after a hard day hiking. As I mentioned before, the Black Sheep Inn is another option at Chugchilan. It's sort of an Echo Lodge retreat that might be a really nice option. It's called the Cloud Forest Hostel there in Chugchilan because there is a, a hike you can do from Chugchilan up to the Paramo, to the Cloud Forest. So if you want to have a, a layover day, you could take a, a morning hike. You go in the morning to avoid the clouds. It's about a four-hour round-trip hike to go up to the crest of the Andes there, the Paramo, uh, to the alpine scenery. And there's a cheese factory, and that might be um, something worth checking out if you have extra time. Now let's talk about the third day. Day three is from Chukchilan to Kilo Toa. That day, there's a big down and up like three other days. And then you spend a good part of the day along the wall of a pretty long canyon. And then you cross over a creek or a small river mm-hmm. after the long canyon. And then you spend a long time going straight up. Yeah, that was what, like seven or eight miles of just hundred steps and then taking a breath because you're at 12,000 feet and you can't breathe. Yeah. I don't know if it was that far. It probably just felt that far um, <laughs> Yeah, at yeah. the end. At the end, it was close, but yeah. And so you go up a long way to Kilo Toa. Eventually you get to a view of Laguna Kilo Toa, which is you're really your goal for this entire hike. And that's a huge caldera lake. And it's at uh, 3,914 meters, so 12,841 feet. And as Justin mentioned, you got to hike slow getting up there because you have no other choice because you're going to be out of breath from the altitude. 
And then you get to the top and there's a small cafe and another friendly stray dog. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? You think you're there, but yeah, are you, you there? You get to the top and you're at like this little cafe and you think you made it. You're all happy. You sit down, you take a look and you see across this massive crater. And that's where like all the way on the complete opposite side is where you're trying to get to. So you had to walk the whole bowl around, or half of it, I guess. That's right. It was a long two or three miles or whatever it was. It was the longest little bit that I could have asked for. Yeah, I think we were all cursing ourselves as we hiked uh, along the rim to get to the town of Kilotoa. Uh, The caldera itself is about three kilometers or two miles across, so it's pretty big. And it was formed by the collapse of a volcano the time of an eruption 600 years ago and um, or more than 600 years ago now in 1280. That had been after 14,000 years of dormancy, apparently. So you never know when these things are going to go. The lake is very deep, 250 meters deep, uh, almost uh, about 820 feet deep. And at the other side, as just mentioned, the opposite side of the crater, which you have to hike along, is the town of Kilotoa, which is a sort of touristy town set up where buses come in to see the lake from all different places. There's lots of hotels. Yeah, they were building, like, there were probably 10 or 12 already, and then they were building at least 10 or 12 more on the outskirts. It seemed like it was kind of a booming uh, tourist town. Um, we stayed at Hostel Chukirawa, which had a really cool uh, little atrium room with some hammocks to hang out in and a nice fireplace for the evening and a nice view and some some decent food. And then we all slept perfectly well that night, right? Not exactly. It's kind of hard when you're 12,900 feet in, in space. That's right. So we, we none of us slept very well at all. And I think even though we had been in Ecuador two and a half weeks or two weeks at this point, mm-hmm. we were still having trouble with the altitude because you're at the highest point on the entire hike. Um, so something to be aware of there. There's definitely serious altitude at Kilotoa. A couple of options you have if you want to do additional stuff there or if you want to if you have a layover day you can hike down to the lake which a lot of people do which is a 30 minute hike down and about an hour back uh, after a long day of hiking we opted not to do that <laughs> it's about 400 meters down uh, you can hire a donkey to take the to go back up if you don't want to walk back up and you can rent kayaks uh, to, to go out on the lake and there's even campsites down there so um, people who are plan for camping that's one place you actually can camp. You could also hike the entire rim of the crater, which is about a 10 and a half kilometer or a little bit over six mile hike that takes about five to seven hours. We had already hiked a good chunk of that, as we mentioned, so um, we decided against that as well. We were basically tired and done with hiking and um, we're happy the next morning to take a bus back to Latacunga and then another bus on to Quito. And so that was... You know, that was our hike, and that's basically, a, a, I think, a pretty good itinerary to do uh, a three-day trek at Kilotoa. Anything else that I missed on that, Justin? I don't think so. Um, that was that was a great trip. That's all I can say, I guess. All right. Highly recommended. And so while I've got you, um, I thought it might be useful to talk about a couple of other things before we finish up. One is... I took you and your mom took you. We took you on a lot of backpacking and trekking trips pretty much from a very young age. So did we do the right thing there? I think so. <laughs> I I love hiking and 
I love nature and it, I attribute it a lot to my experience just being out there for the amount of hours and just one step in front of the other since I think I was three, my first backpacking trip. That's right. And so has it, how do you think it's impacted the way you think about things? Well, I have a deep appreciation for nature and for, I guess, our environment. And I, I really do think it it stems from having, like I said, been out there for the amount of hours that I have been and go, going to places that you can't drive to and seeing everything up close and at a walking speed and just feeling the ground and understanding that it doesn't have to be permanent. Like you, this could have a hotel built on it tomorrow. And so it means a lot to keep the places natural that still are. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of the places where we've hiked in the United States are more like that than the trip we described on this episode. Are there particular things you remember most fondly about the hikes you did growing up? Yeah. I mean, I have like, I have some highlight hikes in general. I'm sure you'll have more episodes in the future, but the Tour de Mont Blanc was incredible. The hike in Yosemite was beautiful. And I remember that from that one specifically, I think it was the second to last day. It was the longest day of my young backpacking career at like 16 and a half miles, I think. And towards the end, we had to go up a maybe 1,500 feet of elevation to get to our spot to camp at May Lake. And the first half of the day, I wasn't going too fast. But by the end of the day, I was feeling pretty good. And my trash talking had gotten to, <laughs> it had started flowing. And so I was challenging my dad to call the, call the rest. I didn't want to, I didn't want to call the break. That's right. Yeah. Whoever decided we had to break first was the loser of that game. I remember that game. Yeah. I think ultimately I lost. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the High Sierra Camps loop in Yosemite, and I'll definitely do a future episode on that hike. Um, what about the opposite? Are there moments where you wondered, how in the heck did my parents bring me out to this crazy place? You know what? It It's really hard for me to think of anything where I didn't enjoy being out there. It's really just, I think the parts where the how the heck is more before, because just going to hikes like that takes a lot of preparation, takes a lot of mental effort, and I'm not the one doing the majority of it, but I mean, I still have to pack my bag, still have to mentally prepare to hike however many miles, and sometimes that can be laborious and intimidating, but once you're out there, it's, I don't regret anything really. Not even the time we got whacked by a huge storm, uh, in the, uh, at Thousand Island Lake in the Ansel Adams wilderness. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I'm here right now. So it was a fun trip. <laughs> all right. What advice would you give to parents with young kids who are thinking of taking them backpacking or trekking? Anything that comes to mind? Um, maybe not as an excuse, but for lack of a better word, use your kids as an excuse to really get out there and see the nature and the world, wherever you are. If it's a day hike for two miles or if it's a backpacking trip for 10 days, it's it's all the same. You just It's great to get out there and it, it helps stimulate your appreciation for nature, I think. So let's, let's talk about some of the specifics uh, of your backpacking experience. Um, other than the sort of idea of, of backpacking as a family, which we just talked about a little bit. Is there one piece of gear that you don't leave home without or everyone should, should consider bringing when they go on a big hiking trip? 
Yeah, I think uh, warm socks because you're going to be hiking all day and you'll be hot at the end of the day if it's not a super cold day and you, you won't think it's necessary and then sun goes down and the world changes and it gets cold quick when you're at high elevation and if your feet aren't warm, you're going to have a tough night and so I would definitely bring a second pair and preferably wool. Yeah, I agree. Even in middle of summer kind of trips or even at the equator when when the sun goes down it can be very very cold so what what do you think is the best backpacking trekking camping or wilderness travel advice you've ever gotten uh this comes from you actually but you said and i i don't know if there's any uh statistics to back this up but that the human experience is meant to be processed at a walking speed And I think you really understand that and can appreciate that when you've been walking for a while. Is that like when you're driving past something or even when you're on a run, you miss a lot. And when you're hiking, you don't have to. You can stop. Yeah. So I hear what you're trying to say. You're saying that the um, it's processed, that your mind processes what you're doing at a speed that makes sense when you're walking. Yeah. And you, you can see that you can feel it when you're walking when when you've been walking for 10 15 miles you you know what you did that day you can remember every every creek every corner and it's not like it's difficult you just you have a a solid memory of it because your mind processed it at the speed it was meant to be processed at yeah i agree and and to be fair i didn't come up with that on my own <laughs> i'm sure i believe i read it i'd read it in a few places one that i can remember was a book by rebecca solnit she had a book on walking and i can't remember the name of the book offhand but that's one of the places where i first read that concept that really stuck with me which is that the human mind is really meant to process things at the speed of walking and and so that is one of the things that you can do on these kinds of trips. And I think I agree what's different from even running is the ability to just stop and and take in your surroundings. So what's one hike you've done that others shouldn't miss out on? It's hard to ask to go all the way to Europe, but the Tour de Mont Blanc is just, it's ridiculous. Every day you're seeing something that you wouldn't have thought would be possible. You're doing something that you didn't think you would ever do in your life and the people around you are just as awestruck as you and it's it's an amazing experience uh if you don't want to go all the way out there and if you're in the west coast like me there's the sierra nevada is just packed full of amazing views and remote locations that when you walk there it's mind-blowing like i said even the may lake hike i remember looking back from that hillside and just being blown away by the scenery I agree with all of that. So what's the next trail on your list or the hike you most want to do? That's a good question. Well, the next one that hopefully we can do is in uh, Sequoia is a 80-mile loop that uh, contains part of the High Sierra Trail, which should be beautiful. But on my own bucket list, I've always wanted to go to Costa Rica or to somewhere in the Central America and I think finding a hiking trip that would go through some of uh, the more biodiverse rainforests, because that's uh, I'm really interested in like what dense wildlife looks like and what like how many species of plants can you put in a square mile and like what kind of animals could I see that I would never be able to see before. So I, somewhere in like a in a jungle or a tropical rainforest would be cool. 
Yeah, there are some great hikes, um, I think, in, in Guatemala and Colombia and places like that that could fit that bill for sure. And certainly the Sierra, and I hope we get to do that trip soon. We're planning on it. We'll see what happens. And I know you t- talked about the John Muir Trail, too, which... Yeah, yeah, the John Muir Trail. I should have started with that one, but that one's definitely on my list. All right, Justin. So thanks for joining me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And so to listeners, I hope I've inspired you to add the Kilo Toa Trek to your bucket list. And and keep in mind that this podcast is just entertainment. If you decide to hike the trail, please do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, Outdoor Adventure has risks. So when you go, pack your common sense. Uh, And when you get back, tell me how it went. Any feedback you have on this episode or ideas for future episodes can be sent to trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this is Jeremy back with the preview of our next episode. On our next episode, we describe a trail that is on an ancient volcanic island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's an island filled with lush tropical forest, and this is a coastal hike along the oceanside cliffs. It reaches remote beaches, streams, and waterfalls, and ends up in an ancient, isolated valley that was once inhabited by native islanders and today may still be inhabited by a few renegades. On our next episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Kalalau Trail on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. So I'll talk to you then. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) 